Before I begin my homily, I'll let you know that the hospitality ministers are going to walk through the aisles. They are looking to see if you're dressed properly, and if not, to escort you out. No, I'm just kidding. They're, um, they're, they're going to take a count. Every October, we take a mass count, so that's what they're doing. Don't let them distract you. Uh, and also, before I begin my homily, I've been approached by many people in the last several days who are deeply, um, who are fearful, uh, angry, concerned about things going on in the church and the world. Uh, in the church, statements made by high-ranking churchmen which contradict scripture and tradition and what the church has always taught. And in the world, um, full-on war between Israel and Hamas uh, in Gaza, as in addition to a war between Russia and Ukraine, both wars have... Uh, not only are they causing great destruction and death and suffering, but also, too, they have um, uh, a good chance of expanding. And so people are understandably concerned. I'm not going to address that in my homily today. I want to give more thought and prayer to it and maybe in, uh, put together something, write something that I can share with you and maybe have a gathering where we can pray together and, and do some of our own discernment as a parish community. Um, so I'll, I'll be working on that hopefully this week. Uh, but for now, I want you to, um, uh, to not be afraid. God says that over and over again in Scripture. I'm convinced God is in charge of everything, that whatever suffering may lie before us is according to his perfect will and is what we need. Uh, also, too, not to live too much in the headlines. Uh, I think the enemy gets us so concerned about things we can't control that are far away that we take our focus off our own souls and helping the people around us to be close to God. And that's something that we do have influence over. So, our readings today. We have the third parable in the row about vineyards. And what does that tell us? It tells us that the Jews in Jesus' day really liked their wine. <laughs> so it was a very big feature of their life to have these vineyards. Um, and, uh, the, you know, they produced the grapes, which, which you make into wine, but they were a lot of work. So notice in Isaiah's telling the story, uh, story of his friend's song about a vineyard and all the work that goes into it. You have to spade it, clear it of stones, plant a choice vine, build a watchtower, hew out a press, wine press, build a hedge. It's a lot of work. And... No one puts that kind of work into something without the goal of it producing fruit. Huh? And so God is speaking through Isaiah to Israel, saying God has done everything he can for you, and you remain without fruit. That is, you remain unfaithful to the covenant, and you remain in rampant sin. And therefore, God is going to turn you over to your enemies and for them to bring you low. And then in our psalm, is from the perspective of the people who have been brought low. Okay? Right? The, the vineyard of the Lord is the house of Israel and Judah, its choice portion, and they were brought low, right, in the 500 years before Christ by the Babylonians when uh, Jerusalem was destroyed, and they're crying out to God now, look down from heaven and see, take care of this vine and protect what your right hand has planted. And there's a messianic theme in this. I don't know if you listened. The Son of Man, whom you yourself made strong. So now Jesus picks up this theme of vineyards, but he does it a little bit differently, right? So the vineyard of the Lord is, 
is still his, his people, right? But this is a vineyard that is let out to tenants. And notice that Jesus is directing this parable to the religious leaders, to the chief priests and the elders. Okay? Uh, and so, uh, you know, the owner lends out his property to the tenants. When it's time for the harvest, he sends his servants to gather, gather the harvest. And what do the tenants do? They beat one, they kill another, and he sends more servants, and they do the same thing until finally he sends his son, and thinking they would respect his son, but in fact, they kill his son as well because they want the vineyard for themselves. So, this is the different things that are represented in the parable, right? The vineyard is God's people, the tenants are the leaders of that time, the chief priests and elders. The servants, who are they? They are the prophets, right? So what would God do? Oftentimes in the history of Israel, the leadership became corrupt, and so God would send prophets, right, who would call Israel to repentance and renewal. And they were mistreated often. So we know from some of the accounts in the Bibles, for example, Jeremiah was mistreated. But we also have other extra-biblical accounts and uh, strong traditions. Traditions about Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, and Micah, all being killed by religious and civil leaders of Israel and Judah. Okay? And then what has happened shortly before Jesus is giving this parable? Remember John the Baptist, whom Jesus calls the greatest of all the prophets? What happens to him? Herod, right? A leader of the people kills him. And, of course, in the parable, right, the son is Jesus. That's an obvious one. And so Jesus is foretelling his own death. And there's a little detail in there. It says the tenants took him out of the vineyard to kill him. And Jesus was crucified outside the walls of the old city of Jerusalem. So there is also, though, a further part of the parable which was fulfilled. What will happen? What will the landowner do to those tenants? He will put them to a wretched death. Jesus is crucified in 33 AD, and in 70 AD, the armies of Rome destroy Jerusalem. So this is a prophecy of our Lord that has been fulfilled. And the parable also says that the landlord will give and trust his vineyard to new tenants. And so the new tenants are the apostles. So Jesus formulates a new leadership, and it's no longer just the house of Israel That's the vineyard of the Lord. But the new Israel will include Gentiles as well as Jews. So Jesus is foretelling uh, this new vineyard with new tenants. And then to just throw in uh, an architectural parable or a construction parable, he cites scripture also about a stone, a stone that's rejected by the builders that then is used as a cornerstone for a new new temple. So he is that cornerstone. So is all this only about things in the past, or does it have something for us today? Well, first of all, I think it is uh, a warning to the new tenants, to those whom God has entrusted the care of his people of every generation, as a warning to them that they don't own the vineyard. They are accountable to the landowner for the produce that if they abuse the sacred trust which God has given them, they too will come to a bad end. And eventually God will give, uh, will will have new uh, worthy tenants 
that will give him the produce at the proper time. And if we look in the history of the church, we see and we are, we are blessed to have had many heroic and saintly bishops and priests. We've had many mediocre ones. <laughs> and we've had many that are wicked and lazy and corrupt. And depending on the period in church history, there seems to be different proportions of these. And I'll leave it to your discernment as to where we are in our current situation in church history. Just as in, in the Old Covenant, God would send prophets to help reform and uh, help the leaders recover their, their mission, so too he sends, even in the New Dispensation, saints that kind of serve that prophetic role, many of them also mistreated by church authorities. Remember Joan of Arc? Right? She is burned at the stake by the bishops of the church. Teresa of Avila. Ignatius of Loyola, Padre Pio, all of these were persecuted by church authorities, but later vindicated by God. And that's why we call them saints today. And we look to them as examples. These, these bad tenets, they, their fundamental problem is that they don't uh, accept that it's not their vineyard. It's the vineyard of the Lord, and they are tenants. They're, they're given the vineyard, care of the vineyard for the glory of God and the good of his people. There's also a broader lesson for all of us. Uh, and that is, you know, we, we talk a lot about human rights. Human rights discourse has been very common for a few centuries. It actually originated even before the Enlightenment by natural law thinkers in the church. And it's an important way to think about, right? The dignity that we have, uh, and the rights that we have, and, and also the duties, right, that those rights entail towards others. And so we talk a lot about human rights, but you know we don't talk about much at all, which we need to talk more about? God's rights. God has rights, you know that? God has rights and we have duties <laughs> because of, of his rights. In fact, not only this parable, many parables Jesus tells are, are trying to help you understand God's rights. So Jesus is telling the story of members, the chief priests and elders. By the way, many of them had vineyards. And so he's telling the story and they're like, they're following it. They're like, oh, this is terrible. I mean, if, if somebody, I put all that work into my vineyard and somebody does that and I send my servants, boy, I would put them to a wicked death, right? Well, then they're supposed to say, wait a second, put yourself in God's shoes now. Don't you see? what God's rights are. And, and it's interesting because, yeah, the conclusion, the judgment of those tenants actually comes out of the very lips of the chief priests and elders themselves. One of the things that, uh, that some, some of our parishioners, some of you, are very, it's a very painful and difficult thing in your life. You may have adult children that are alienated from you. Uh, that are ungrateful for the way that you brought them up. And I hear that, and now I, um, I'm always careful not to make a definitive internal judgment because I, a lot of times I'm not talking to those adult children, and there's usually two sides to a story. But um, oftentimes I can see, you know, that uh, I, I, I can, I'm encouraging and empathetic with what the parents are sharing. I'm trying to, you know, encourage them to pray for reconciliation. But one of the things I say to them, I say, 
You know, I think now you have a little bit of a sense of how God feels. How many of God's children are ungrateful? How many of God's children ignore him? So we can complain about, we can complain about situations and leaders, but I think it's better for us to get to work in the vineyard. Let's do some work in the vineyard for the Lord. In uh, a little over a week, we're going to have the celebration of the 10th anniversary of the dedication of this building, this parish church. And uh, it's a beautiful, uh, beautiful building that we have to worship God in. So we're going to gather at Mass at 5.30 to thank God for that and to praise Him. But also, too, um, afterwards we're going to have a ministry fair. And... uh, This will highlight the many ways in which the parish mission is carried out, not only in worship, but in faith formation, in works of mercy, helping people in various need, uh, and fellowship and prayer groups as well. You know, some Catholics, some Catholics have this idea that the parish is like a cruise ship. They just show up and enjoy, and everyone else is doing the work. Hopefully not you, right? The parish is not a cruise ship. The parish is a battleship. Okay? So, you're part of the crew. (laughs) You have to man the guns. You have to mop the deck. You have to cook in the kitchen. And the ministry fair is designed to give you a better idea of all that's involved in, in serving in the vineyard of the Lord, this portion of the Lord's vineyard, and for you hopefully to find a, a place where you fit, where your gifts and talents can be put to good use. Remember, brothers and sisters, the rights of God, rights that he has that impose duties on us because he is our creator. He sustains us every moment of our existence and he redeems us from the just consequences of our sins so that we can have eternal life. And so God deserves our worship. God deserves our love. God deserves our service God deserves our obedience. God deserves much more than we can give him, but he is pleased when we try. And when we fail and are sorry and try again, he is pleased. When we live according to God's will, when we serve God, we will be happier as individuals, as a community, as a society. But that isn't even, shouldn't even be the main reason why we do it. We shouldn't just do it because it will make us happy. It will. That's the byproduct. We should do it because God deserves it. Let us be good tenants, the people who produce the fruits of the kingdom.